some Postal Service mail carriers want to leave their union after most of them saw pay cuts this past spring. A grassroots network of rural carriers is collecting signatures from their co-workers in the hopes of decertifying the National Rural Letter Carriers Association. Carriers say the union didn't do enough to keep USPS from implementing this new pay system that's been in the works for more than a decade. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman has all of this for us. And let's begin with why the rural carriers are looking for a different union What happened with that pay system, Jory? So this new system that went into place this spring, the Rural Route Evaluated Compensation System, or RECS, this is something that has been coming for a while. This is at least a decade in the works. It's the product of arbitration between the union and the Postal Service. What this really translated into, once it went into effect, was a pay cut for two-thirds of rural carrier employees and some severe cuts. This is something that obviously upset rural carriers. They knew it was coming, but the impact was immediate for them. Got it. So they're looking for a different union they think can do what then? Well, they think that the union didn't do enough to uh, prevent the system from going into place. It's been delayed, delayed, delayed because of some of the underlying data that was feeding into this new system that affected people's pay. And they said that the union should have kept delaying this, pushing back against the Postal Service from implementing this. The level of cuts that we're seeing from rural carriers here are pretty severe. I've spoken to a number of carriers who have seen $10,000 cuts, $15,000 cuts. I spoke with Kim Farmer, one of the people leading this decertification effort. She's a rural carrier in Palm Beach, Florida. She says that she's now working six days a week under this REC system to make the same amount of money she was making previously for five days. The union, they don't really stand up for you. And like I said, I do understand the post office does have to run, but we're paying for the union to do something. And if they can't figure it out, Hire people and say, what do you think could be done to change this around instead of using their own ideas? Because they're not very good. My question is, if they're working longer for the same money or working the same amount for less money, this is based on the volume of what they deliver? Is rural carrying somehow different from urban carrying? Yeah, it's a very convoluted system. I can give you the high overview here. Unlike city carriers, rural carriers are paid by the route that they deliver, and that route gets evaluated in certain increments every couple of years. This new system, it factors into a couple of things. Mail volume is one of them, and mail volume has been on the decline, and that's what people say contributes to this cut in pay. But there's other things factored in here. There are some scans that carriers have to factor into when they deliver mail and packages, things that do have a barcode, and that time to delivery also feeds into things. Interesting. Yeah. So it's fundamentally a different job than is done in the cities. You might have a house every 50 feet or something, a mailbox or 100 feet. This is you could drive down and there's a mailbox every half mile or something. I think the key word here is density, Tom, that, you know, there's a considerable drive for some rural carriers depending, you know, from door to door, depending on what their route looks like. Yeah, and sometimes it's not even an official postal vehicle. You see somebody's old beat-up Sienna, you know, with a postal sign stuck on it. Now, getting back to this decertification push that we heard about, how far along are they and do they have the uh, the clout to do it? Well, the leaders behind this initiative that I spoke to, uh, they said they've gathered as of earlier this month 7,400 signatures. Now, that's a ways away from their ultimate goal. They would need about 30% of the overall bargaining unit to submit these signatures, and these are being collected on physical cards. So this would translate into about 
just under 40,000 employees saying yes to this effort. If they get to that point, they would submit all these signatures to the National Labor Relations Board. They would verify those signatures, make sure everything's above board, and then they would hold an election of every rural carrier under the bargaining unit. And if a majority of the votes cast are in favor of keeping the union, the union will stay. Otherwise, they will decertify the union and try to find another one. Yeah, I was going to say, so that means that uh, they would not have a union until they certified a new one. This is just the decertification of the existing union. And are there any alternative unions that are looking good to them? I'm hearing from the people behind this push that they are looking to join the International Brotherhood of Teamsters. I did reach out to the Teamsters about this. They said that they have not been in talks with the rural carriers about this, and that's an important thing to bring up. So there's no formal deal in place here. This is still the rural carriers, in some sense, shopping around for alternative unions. And again, let's get back to the National Rural Letter Carriers Association itself. You spoke to the president there. What did he have to say? Yeah, I spoke with uh, the NRLCA president, Don Mastin. He took office earlier this month. He said that this is something that rural carriers should seriously think about, not throw the baby out with the bathwater. He understands that employees are upset about all of this, but he did want to say that the union is more than 100 years old. They have a really long history with rural carriers, and they doubt that an alternative union will have the same level of protections for rural employees, particularly when it comes to job security. If the union was not there, the Postal Service could just simply make everybody at-will employees and get rid of them. So there are a lot of negative things that individuals aren't looking at. But then there is this new pay system that came and gave lots of people pay cuts. What do they say about that? Mastin said that, you know, ultimately this is a bell curve you got to look at here, that there are some outliers that are seeing those really severe pay cuts that I mentioned earlier. There are some people who did, in fact, see higher rates of pay as a result of this new system. They are out there. Uh, he said the vast majority of people, though, the people in the middle of that bell curve, real minimal changes one way or another. And he says that this just reflects an unfortunate reality, which is that first-class mail volume has been going down precipitously and that there's no expectation that's going to change. We told people from the beginning of this that there were, there were going to be new winners and new losers, a, a redistribution of the hours. But that bell curve, when people say that everybody lost tremendous amounts of time and money, that's not an accurate statement. And that's Don Mastin, who is the president of the National Rural Letter Carriers Association. All right. So it's up in the air at this point. One thing to point out here, there is a bit of a deadline that rural carriers do face. They would need by the end of the calendar year in December to get all of those signatures. The reason why is because they need to have this decertification effort locked into place when a new contract would be up, and that would be in spring of next year. So that's one thing to keep in mind. A long rural road ahead. Yes. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. Thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And be sure to check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees, joined Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to share how his upbringing in rural Alabama eventually propelled him to the forefront of thousands of union members raising a collective voice. After years of leadership with both the largest federal employee union and as a pastor, Everett Kelly reflects on his deep-rooted values of integrity and hard work. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Mr. Everett Kelly, National President of the American 
Federation of Government Employees. Everett, welcome and thank you for being here. Shane, thank you. It's a pleasure mine. You first joined AFGE in 1981 during what eventually became your 30 years of service at Anniston Army Depot. We're now more than 40 years past 1981, and you've been the union's national president since 2020. How's your decades-long involvement with AFGE impacted the way you view your role now as the union's leader? The time that I spent as local president, I simultaneously spent that same time as a pastor in Alabama. I like to say that this was my training ground because as I was entering into the role of unionism, I was also entering into ministry. And so I see my role, even as the union leader, as ministry. It's never an understatement because this is what I believe. I believe that if you love people and show people that you love them, people will follow you. My business is in the business of growing people, uh, and that's what I do. And And I think that my training as a pastor and as a union uh, leader has given me the ability to really, you know, uh, grow people because I feel like that, you know, it's my responsibility both as a union leader and as a pastor to ensure that people have a livable wage. It's also uh, my responsibility to ensure that people are treated fair with dignity and respect on the job. And I think that goes in both uh, arenas. So, so I've seen this, you know, as ministry, as I've grown through the four decades of leading people. Putting those two together is amazing. AFGE handles a massive array of issues and topics of importance to feds across many departments and agencies. What is it like being at the forefront of all those moving parts, and how do you manage it all? Well, first of all, let me give kudos to my staff, okay? Uh, Because it's just no way that I could manage all of this work and all the moving parts by myself. But I have an excellent staff that always make sure that I'm prepared and that I'm ready. But it's exciting. It's exciting to be out in the forefront, you know, uh, bringing people to the realization that they have something to fight for. But again, I cannot, and please understand when I say I cannot, it's, it's, it's what I truly believe. I cannot do it without a good, strong staff. Uh, and I tell anybody that, but I enjoy fighting for the cause. I enjoy standing in front of a group of AFG members, calling them to action, and then standing back and watching that action come to fruition. Because I know that I'm not the one that's doing it, okay? They're the one that's doing it. I'm merely casting a vision, right? And I enjoy casting a vision and then watching that vision come to fruition. And it's the staff and the members that get that done. As CEO at, at WEPA, I completely and totally understand that we rely on them. It's not Absolutely. just nice to have. We rely on Absolutely. them. Absolutely. As AFGE president, you often speak at union rallies and other events widely attended by federal employees. What's it like to experience that direct connection to employees? And how does that influence your leadership style? You know, that gets me excited, okay? To be standing in front of a group of AFGE leaders get me excited. To hear the words, who are we? And the chants that come back that says AFGE gets me excited. It gets my motor uh, running, if you will. And it's exciting to look at them 
and see the motivation in their faces when they're fighting for a cause. And, and, and all of us come together and fight uh, in solidarity, fight as one, raise one voice. You can't explain the feeling. You just know that it's right. You know, I just know that it's right when I'm standing there and I feel this and I never fail to say thank you again because I'm the one that merely casts division. They are the ones that get the work done. And so when I see them out there ready to go and that call to action goes out, and then I see them really begin to march on that uh, initiative. It's an energy that I cannot explain. I can explain it. I'm feeling it right now. <laughs> um, the, Describe how your personal background and upbringing folds into how you function as a leader. You know, understanding that I was born in the Deep South. I was born in a little small town in Goodwater, Alabama, population 1,292 today. Born to parents that, and I hope I don't offend anybody, and I've got to quit saying this, but, but I was born to a set of parents that believed and trusted in God. And that began to establish who I was. I began to trust God myself in everything that I do. I, I trust God even in this situation as a union leader because my parents taught me to believe in uh, the Bible. And with that came do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. In other words, treat people right. Treat people with respect, right? Do what's right. It taught me, you know, about integrity, right? It taught me about being honest, you know, and that's what's needed in the role of a leader of this union. It's it's needed. uh, And, you know, I try to portray that. I try to portray a person of honesty and a person of integrity. And so being in the deep South, you know, you you, you just learn those things. And that's what has helped me uh, throughout my path as a union leader. And it's always nice that whole approach because you don't have multiple approaches with different people or different sets of different tasks, different energy. It's, it's always straightforward, yes. honest, here's the truth. Yes. And it, it's, it's easy. Yes. Right? Yes. It's a lot easier than having multiple personas. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. What's one piece of advice, if you could go back and tell yourself when you were starting your career? You know, I don't know you asked for one, but I'm, I'm going to have to elaborate on two, yeah, if that's yeah. okay. Number one, I would explain the urgency of integrity a lot sooner than what I did, right? Because to me, integrity is not necessarily what you see others do or what others see you do. But integrity to me is what you do even when no one is looking. And so I I would really begin to stress that importance more so at an earlier state in my leadership role rather than the latter part. Okay. I, I begin to stress that more now, but I wish I had began to do that more at the earlier states in my uh, role. Secondly, I would tell myself to always, and I'm going back to my roots, always work hard and don't ever accept no as an answer, right? Because I just believe that if you want it bad enough, if you want to achieve it, you can it's all about the amount of work you put into it, right? And the and the amount of faith you have that it can be accomplished. So when I look at AFGE and its membership and where we were four or five years ago and where we are today, that's a reminder that you can do whatever 
you want to do if you put your mind to it and work hard enough. And one question that's always kind of interesting at, at the end of our time together is, is there one person, you mentioned your parents before, mm-hmm. um, is there one person or maybe more than one who really inspired you when you were younger that you might even think back on today? It was my grandmother, you know, with the understanding that when and when I was born, right, as I said, I was born in the Deep South. My father worked extremely hard. We didn't have a whole lot. You know, my, I had 12 siblings. And so when I was born, I was very sick. Matter of fact, the doctor said I wouldn't live to be 16 years old. The doctor said I wouldn't ever hold a job. But my grandmother would always teach me how to pray. And she taught me about faith. And it is prayer and faith that has allowed me to be standing here today. Suppose I've been dead 50 years ago, but I'm 66 years old now. And it's all because of my faith and my belief and my prayer life. And I believe that beyond a shadow of a doubt. Amazing story. Thank you for sharing all of it with us, Everett. And really appreciate you being on the show today. Pleasure is mine. And this is Shane Canfield. We'll see you next time on Lessons in Leadership. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.